Good evening, uh, good afternoon. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. In September 2008, when he was asked about the intention of Venezuela's opposition to denounce him at the Organization of American States for subverting his country's democratic institutions, Hugo Chavez candidly replied, why are they going to the OAS if we have their Argentina, 14 or 15 Caribbean governments that belong to Petrocaribe? We have Daniel Ortega. We have Honduras, Brazil, Correa and Ecuador, Uruguay. Who is advising these people? Chavez's statement was a blunt reminder that the Organization of American States had been captured by Latin America's populist regimes. And one of the main facilitators of this development has been Secretary General Jose Miguel Insulza. Since he came to lead the OAS in 2005, Insulza has been permissive, if not complicit, of, in the efforts of leaders such as Chavez, Rafael Correa, Daniel Ortega, and Manuel Zelaya to undermine democratic institutions in their countries. For example, in 2009, Insulza actively supported Zelaya in his efforts to organize an illegal referendum in Honduras that aimed at reforming the Constitution so he could stand for re-election. As we all know, the ensuing constitutional crisis led to the removal of Zelaya from power and the suspension of Honduras from the OAS. In 2011, Insulza praised the unconstitutional re-election of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, claiming that in that country, democracy and peace had triumphed, despite the fact that the election monitor from the very OAS pointed out to several irregularities during the voting process. Insulza was also a firm proponent in the efforts to readmit Cuba to the OAS, saying that there are other countries in America with problems of democracy, not just Cuba. Moreover, in recent years, the populist regimes of Latin America have mounted a challenge, a challenge to the OAS most effective institutions, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and its Office of the Special Rapporteur of Freedom of, of Expression. In the face of such, such violations, one of the disappointing characteristics of the populist capture of the OAS has been the deafening silence of democratic governments such as those of Chile, Costa Rica, Mexico, and the United States. But one notable exception was Guillermo Coches during his tenure as permanent ambassador of Panama to the OAS. Since 2009, he was a lone voice in favor of rule of law and the respect of democratic institutions in that organization. Early this year, Cochet was dismissed from his job after bravely criticizing the OAS silence on the current situation in Venezuela. Today we'll hear from him one last time before he departs to his native uh, Panama tomorrow. And we also hear from Mr. William Berenson, who is a veteran of the OAS and worked in that organization for, for over 30 years. We'll start with uh, Mr. Cochet, who, as I said, is the former permanent ambassador of Panama to the Organization of American States. In 1989, after the overthrow of the military dictatorship that had ruled Panama since 1968, Coches was appointed mayor of the city of Panama. He also served two terms in Panama's National Assembly, and he has been professor of the law school of Universidad de Panama for more than 33 years. Cochet received his law degree from the School of Law and Political Sciences of the University of Panama 
Here, his master's degree of civil law and the law and at the law school of Tulane University. He's an avid writer, and his opus are published all over Latin America. One curious thing is that uh, when the American forces uh, raided uh, Noriega's compound in Panama City after the invasion, they found a list with the seven biggest enemies of uh, Noriega. Uh, Mr. Coches was in that short list of enemies. So he has been a defender of democracy not only in Latin America, but in his country when his country was ruled by a military dictatorship. So help me welcome Mr. Guillermo Coches. Thank you, Juan Carlos. Thank you to the Cato Institute for this invitation. Thank you for the presence of my dear colleagues of the Organization of American State here today. Ladies and gentlemen, on June 30, 2009, as we celebrate Ricardo Martinelli's victory and prepare for the presidential inauguration that was to take place on the following day, I had already been appointed as permanent representative to the OAS, and our work has already begun. In the midst of the celebration, we were notified of the interest expressed by President Zelaya, already ousted as the constitutional president of Honduras, of traveling from Costa Rica, where he had been taken in his pajamas by the Honduran government, over to Panama in order to attend the inauguration of the new president of Panama, while at the same time being given honors as president of Honduras. And this was, was done. One must remember that although Zelaya the party from power was an irregular act. His attempt to change the constitution with logistical assistance by Venezuela in order to be reelected, a procedure already followed in the Alba countries, put him in direct confrontation with the other branches of the government. In fact, when this situation emerged, Celaya administration have not been pay paying the members of the legislative branch their salary for seven months, and the Supreme Court have ordered that the constitutional referendum meant to allow the president relation must not proceed because that was unconstitutional. The OIS assumed the role of supporting Celaya's arbitrary pretensions stemming from its services as guarantor of the referendum by sending a mission to stand by the electoral process, something strange within the OAS, something in with which the organization in some way was ratified, the ratified abuses of power of the government, Honduran government under Celaya. We call Secretary General Insulza, so as be apprised of the situation and to obtain more details concerning the General Assembly of the OAS that have been convened as July 1st in order to gain a knowledge to the matter. The General, Secretary, the General Assembly was to be held on July the 4th, for which reason I immediately took on my duties as ambassador and flew to Washington to participate at that meeting in representation of my government. Thus began my intense three years and a half tenure at the OAS, which I never imagined would turn into a permanent struggle to defend democracy and prevent attack against human rights, particularly against the rapporteurship of unfreedom of expression. 
It was the first acid test for the ALBA countries because one of its members, Honduras, under Celaya, have lost power. This would be followed by other events, all called out, call out directly or indirectly by OS members belonging to the ALBA group. Already at the General Assembly at San Pedro Sula in June 2009, where I attended as a guest of the previous government of Panama, I saw how Venezuela Foreign Minister Maduro has led the discussion concerning the lifting of the sanctions that had been applied against Cuba in 1962, suspending it from the OAS, trying to pave the way for that Caribbean island without demanding any compromise in return. After long discussions with participation by President of Honduras and his alternate and wife, also the power behind the throne, Argentina and Paraguay, plus Elaya, it was possible to approve that resolution by means of an agreement that would allow Cuba to enter the OAS provided it complied with the Democratic Charter. Had it not been for Panama, always supported by Canada and Costa Rica, and in a very tepid way by the United States, as well by Guatemala during his previous government, by Colombia in the days of Uribe, by Paraguay, the previous ambassador who was hardly present and did not belong to Lugo's party, by El Salvador in the days of Ambassador Massa Martelli, and who, thank goodness, returned to the OAS a few days ago by Uruguay in the days of Tabaré Vázquez and by Peru in the days of Alan García. The hijacking of the OIS would have been perpetrated much sooner. I believe it is no irreversible, especially because Secretary General Insulza interest is in Chile and his senatorial aspirations there and not at the OIS. During the time he has remaining, to, he will try not to make any waves and not allow anyone to insult him or question him, something that frightens him and displeases him immensely and could potentially undermine his political aspirations in Chile. Let us look at these cases in a little more detail. The case of Honduras, the Colombia denunciation concerning the presence of the, the FARC camps on Venezuela territory on 2010, the Nicaragua intervention in the San Juan River problem in 2010, attacks by ALBA against the rapporteurship of, of freedom of expression, the case of Julian Assange by, brought by Ecuador, Venezuela departure from the inter-American system, the attempt to suspend uh, Paraguay from the OAS, uh, the Venezuelan institutional crisis of July, of January 10th, last January 10th. In the case of Honduras, only one was have to remember that Foreign Minister Maduro, with megaphone in hand, along with Zelaya at the wheel of a pickup truck, tried to aid and abet Zelaya return to Honduras by way of the Nicaraguan border. In addition to the Alba countries, there was help from other countries. Zelaya finally entered the, into Tegucigalpa, taking refuge in the Brazilian embassy, maybe even with President Lula previous knowledge upon request by President Chavez. They came to believe that this way, Zelaya would return to power by virtue already being on Honduras territory. A little agitation brought about his return. For this reason, it, 
Brazil without being a member of ALBA, who together with Argentina would object the most of lifting Honduras suspension from the OAS, both joined the ALBA chorus in order to prevent Honduras return. I remember that at the moment, commercial trade between Argentina and Honduras was not existing. The process of lifting these sanctions against Honduras and its suspension lasted 20 months, which was accomplished through mediation by Venezuela and Colombia, and I have no doubt that the, this resulted in Honduras being neutralized at the OAS. During this process, Panama characterized itself by pointing out, out the double standard that existed in some countries for judging cases such as Honduras and the human rights violations that were, were attributed to it, thus ignoring denunciation of violations in their own countries, as the, was the case of the 10, 000, uh, 20, 000, 2010 report on those violations occurring in Venezuela, which brought about its attacks against the OAS and particularly against the executive, executive secretary of the Human Rights Commission, Santiago Cantón, whom President Chavez went so far as to call him a human instrument. My speech of this, on December 4, 2009, at the Permanent Council was seen and heard on YouTube by more than a million people. I talked there about the double standard that, that exists in the OAS. Colombia denunciation concerning the presence of fire camps in Venezuela resulted in the resignation of the permanent of the president of the permanent council, Ambassador Francisco Proaño of Ecuador. As is usual and customary, every country may request the inclusion of a topic at the next section of the permanent council, and his president have to include it. Proaño received pressure from his government and from Alba countries to delay the matter, and upon his refusal to comply with this, his government order, he resigned with great dignity. Remaining was the Vice President, Ambassador Joaquin Massa Martelli of El Salvador, who despite all the pressure, convened the session. In a well-documented presentation, Colombia proved with graphic maps and photographs the presence of guerrilla camps on Venezuelan territory, which was being used with the connivance of the government as a safe haven for, for the misdeeds of the FARC. In response to the non-acceptance of Colombia denunciation by, by Venezuela, who repeated the hackneyed refrain that his government was being attacked for being a revolutionary, Panama requested an investigative committee be assigned to determine the veracity of the denunciation. That was the first time I realized that Foreign Minister Maduro has a com complaint to my foreign office concerning our actions. Merely mentioned Venezuela was reason enough to annoy the Venezuelans. By October 2010, Daniel Ortega needed to find a justification for changing his country constitution, which was preventing his relation as president. It occurred to him to create an incident, an international incident with his neighbor, Costa Rica, revisiting all squabble concerning sovereignty of the San Juan River, which separates the two countries. Thus, when the river was 
being dredged, Nicaragua soldiers invaded Costa Rica territory. Costa Rica took the, the matter of the OAS and very astutely his, his foreign minister, Enrique Castillo, now then ambassador to the OAS, left Nicaragua without, with no room to agree. ALBA was of little help for Nicaragua, but was not as much help to Costa Rica either. Nevertheless, in the discussion of a resolution calling for a general assembly to deal with the issue, the Bolivian ambassador decided not to vote against either of the two parties, saying with his vote was no vote, which cost him his seat. He was fired. Insulza traveled to the place of the incidents and proved what had been denounced by Costa Rica. The International Court of the Hague ruled that both had to remove their armies from the area of conflict, which turned out to be a victory for the Costa Ricans because they don't have army. Nevertheless, Daniel Ortega attained his goal. He was reelected in 2010 in elections that that were severely questioned by the OAS under the command of Dante Caputo. As always, nothing was discussed, much less any question of the legal and unconstitutional antecedents that brought Ortega to power. The attacks of the Bayalba against freedom of expression led by Ecuador, the reportership of freedom of expression have been severely attacked and he has been accused of serving the interests of the United States. This protects reaches their climax when the $40 million fine levied by Ecuador courts of law against the Daily El Universo and his board of directors for having published news that President Correa deemed to be offensive and slanderous. These fines resulted in a World War China reaction and several communiques from the reportership on the freedom of expression of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, worldwide reputation was such that the president of Ecuador found it necessary to pardon them. In my case, that country foreign minister came to the permanent council of the OAS to rant and rave against the aforementioned reportership accusing the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights of being at the service of the United States. It found, I found necessary to intervene because the claim that the, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights was submissive to the United States was an insult to the members, states who respect the work of the Commission. I reminded him of the meaning of freedom of expression and also reminded him of his words following Panama offered to asylum to Alfredo Palacio, director of Universo, that no all common criminal from Ecuador will be asking for asylum in Panama. I say to him that when you insult Panama in that manner, that was an insult against us. Uh, but we respect your freedom of expression. The foreign minister again asked for the floor and tried to attenuate what he has said, he has said before. The Assange case resulted in another meeting of the General Assembly upon an Ecuador request. That country intent to have the OAS condemn Great Britain, Britain for his refusal to turn over the authorities Julian Assange, a fugitive 
from Swedish justice accusers in, in that country, famous for his judicial impartiality of sexual crimes. The bilateral matter remained as it was by absolute majority of the OAS, although it stood in favor of having both parties resolve the matter be between themselves, nothing was said about any condemnation against the British government as Ecuador had intended. In the judgment of experts, it was a defeat for that country that have taken this matter to the OAS, even though I was not present in that assembly or instruction of my foreign uh, office, we were very harsh towards Ecuador. In 2012, Venezuela announced its departure from the Inter-American Human Rights System and denounced the American Convention that had created the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Several threats have been made in this respect in a matter repeated by its representative. For years, they have prevented in situ visits by the Commission and by its Executive Secretary Canton on repeated occasion, even insulted by President Chavez himself. All other members of the OAS accepted such visits. During the discussion of the 2012 OAS budget, Nicaragua and Venezuela abstained from supporting an increase of $500,000 approved by the court as well by the Commission, maintaining that this money will be used for attacking countries such as theirs, showing mistrust of how those increases will be utilized. We could not let those attacks go by because they suggested mismanagement of funds belonging to the inter-American system, a matter of disrespect for those of us who believe in them, as well as for observer countries like Spain here present today, that voluntarily contributed on their own behalf. No one else questions this matter. During the discussion of strengthening the inter-American system, ALBA has assumed the role of being an obstacle. Their intention is to weaken the commission and diminish the independence which, which the rapporteurship on freedom of expression have functioned, even though up until this moment, these objectives have not been met. 2012-2013 will be a decisive year for his negative objectives to materialize. In the case of Paraguay, before being bought before the OAS, this country was targeted by suspension by UNASUR and by the Mercosur Trade Forum. This rapid decision sought to isolate Uruguay, Paraguay, within the OAS and has occurred with Honduras following President Zelaya's separation. Even though, as a country, it did not belong to the ALBA, its president, Fernando Lugo, was partial towards them. The situation brought about by suspending Paraguay from Mercosur served as a Europe opportunity to bring Venezuela in this forum through the back door. Up to this moment, Venezuela entered in Mercosur have been blocked by the Paraguay, Paraguayan Congress, which was not controlled by Lugo. This time, under Insulsa rapid action, there was an attempt to learn from the lessons produced by the handling of the crisis with Honduras. Those affected by suspension are not the political class, but rather the people themselves. 
Immediately, a commission was sent to Paraguay, and a mission for observation of elections was appointed, presided over by President Oscar Arias to pave the way for the elections this coming April. Meanwhile, Paraguay is a still member, is a still part of the OAS, but continued to be suspended from UNASUR for, uh, and from MERCOSUR. Furthermore, under threats by Argentina and others, Paraguay was not invited to the Cadiz summit in last November and to the CELAC meeting about a month ago. Venezuela institutional crisis produces by Chavez not being sworn on January 10 for his next term of office was ratified by Insulza without any ask, anybody asking him to do so. Without a doubt, according to all legal experts, Nicolás Maduro has legally, illegally assumed the new terms as vice president because given the absence of the president of the republic, the person who was supposed be there as such was the president of the National Assembly, Diosdado Cabello. On the day on, of my dismissal in January 16, only Canada asked for the appointment of a, a, an OAS investigative commission to go to Venezuela to verify what was happening there. And Paraguay, which state that just as they accepted the fact that they had a crisis following Lugo's remo removal, Venezuela should accept the fact that they have a problem. Insulza immediately dismisses Canada petition and the Venezuela government accuses them of interfering in his internal affairs. The conspirational silence was shame shameful that day at the OAS, even more so when the United States delegation spoke out saying that his country would respect Venezuela's constitutional order, something similar to what Insulza had said. In other words, disregarding the presence of anything irregular in that country. What are my conclusions? It is evident that the political syllabus of the OAS in recent years have been dominated by the ALBA country. Their next step with Insulza eventual departure over the OAS, they will run the entire organization. They will thus make it inoperate, inoperative in this field. The candidates who have thrown themselves into the ring, Eduardo Stein from Guatemala, do not have a, a chance. Even though they are not a part of ALBA, judging by their behavior, they are supportive, supportive of their policy. I'm referring to Brazil and Argentina, but without a permanent, those countries, without a permanent representative for more than, than two years at the OAS. No, they are being joined by Uruguay, formerly very guarded about its independence with the organization. The finance of the OAS grow increasingly worse, and this group power make it more dramatic. Toward the end of 2010, the OAS did not even have enough money to pay the salaries for the second half of, of December. It was necessary to borrow more than $3 million from the Strike Scholarship Fund. The reason Venezuela and Brazil together were owning more than $10 million in overdue assessments. 
Finally, Brazil make payment and Venezuela arrange for payment on terms. All these situations should have placed more pressure in answer to Insulza's lack of decisiveness in taking a stand on cer certain critical issues, especially when the representative from his country of Chile, Chile have allowed everything that happened at the OAS and if it has nothing to do with him despite, despite the dictatorship that country experienced and the democratic nature of his current government. The 14 Caribbean nations constitute the most important bloc at the OAS. This group, owing to the influence of Venezuela, will over the area going back to the times of President Herrera Campins and the presence that Brazil have developed in the area every day leans more toward ALBA and less toward the United States with the obsessions probably of Bahama, Jamaica and Barbados. They are only interested in their part of the scholarships that pertain to them, the appointment of officials from their countries to the OAS post and having the adjunct secretary general be drawn from their ranks. The entire groups pay than 1%, less than 1% of the organization do but half 41% of their votes. The continent political circumstance is not of their interest, nor they want to know about it. They feel it doesn't affect them. Their power was already demonstrated when in 2011, at the General Assembly held in San Salvador, out of the four, their two candidates were elected to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, which weakens the commission because they are not knowledgeable about our language and our judicial ordinance. Toward the end of last year, they moved up through a victory in the Pan-American Health Organization to the candidate from Dominica. They the strength lies in the fact that they are all, always tried to vote as a bloc. Brazil and Mexico do not play a decisive role in political matters. They don't want to, to do anything to defend democracy in the continents. They will say they have enough to do inside their countries. Nevertheless, as for human rights, Mexico demonstrated his commitment in their defense during the President of Permanent Council help during the last quarter of 2012 by Joel Hernandez, who also presided over tasks discussing the strengthening of the commission. I believe Mexico will put a fight aimed to preventing the inter-American system of human rights from growing weak, even though I do not believe that with the exception of Canada and Costa Rica, and probably the United States, Mexico will find some much support against the pounding that will be dealt by the ALBA countries and their allies, aimed to weaken, at weakening his influence, particularly in matter of freedom of expression. Brazil's influence may even determine the decision of the United States not to support the re-election of the, inter, in the in Commission of Dinah Shelton Rapporteur for the Indigenous People and Promoter of the Precautionary Measure Against the Belo Monte Dam in Brazil and who was annoying to that government. Colombia and Peru, even they have democratic governments, will not assume the role they once played during the government of Uribe and Alan Garcia. Repeatedly, ALBA members 
had said that the OAS role of watching over the political system must stop because all the democracies of the continents are stable. Know that what needs to replace the political is the economical so that the people can rise above the stage of being developing nations. Based on that, they don't see problems whatsoever having Cuba now presenting this lack, and that's why they put such a resistance at the summit of the America in Cartagena to have, in order to have Cuba present accepted, even though he have not adhered to the principle of the democratic uh, charter. The U.S. position is regrettable. Last November, four leading senators, John Kerry, Menendez, Marco Rubio, and Richard Lugar, Lugar harshly criticized in social governance, and even though they were not saying anything new besides what Panama and other countries like Barbados have said, I already denounced, they produce no echo whatsoever for the simple reason that the U.S. representation of the OAS failed to follow through. Moreover, upset over the content of the missive, eventually prepared by the U.S. mission to the OAS, and angry in Sulsa, as he is inclined to do, insult, insulted a lady, Ambassador Lomelin, in front of everybody. The U.S. announced that they would take the matter to the Permanent Council, but we, were, we are still waiting. For countries like that celebrates Carnival as Panama, it was like a it was like a fireworks that never exploded. It simply fizzled. U.S. leadership at the U.S. dissipated by the date, not only by lack of participation by his delegation, but, but rather because it would seem that the State Department policy is to dis diminish the importance of this forum. Today, Canada shows more leadership at the U.S. than does the United States, whose Position to, on January 16, that of supporting compliance with the constitutional order was tantamount to ratify Insulza position because all agree in staying, stating that ever since January 10, when Chavez was unable to sworn in, the country have been living in the fringes of what established by his constitution. Someone make a comment to me that on the day it was demonstrated that extreme, extreme position and upcoming together in the end, in reference to Venezuela and the United States. Ever since the departure of, uh, of the Chilean-American Arturo Valenzuela from the State Department, U.S. relations with the OAS are practically non-existent. In Sulsa, as it was his intention, did not succeed in having President Obama make an appearance at the OAS to plan the tree that would mark the beginning of the second centennial of the majestic building, as was done by President Taft in 1910. Nor did he succeed in having Hillary Clinton speak before the Permanent Council. We never met Roberta Jacobson, Valenzuela replacement at the State Department. It is evident that this scenario, the defense of democracy, will be relegated to the defense of different democracies, as Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez has recently dubbed democracy that exists in Cuba, where only 612 persons can aspire 
to gain the 612 uh, seats at the Legislative Assembly. In addition to being without resources, the defense of human rights will be without countries that would defend them to and nail from ever fierce attacks coming from the Alba country. Enforcement of human rights will continue to diminish. In that case, the countries who have hijacked the OAS will end annihilating it because I doubt that the country that hosts the organization and finances 60% of its operations will continue to play this unexplainable role that he has played during the three and a half years that I was in the OAS. I do not believe that the OAS that our nation deserves will with all their hopes for democracy. Something has to be done, and it is urgent. The Organization of American States acts excellent programs in education, development, science and technology, the wars on dogs and terrorism, justice, and many more for which I would need to speak to you for another hour on the diverse work that the organization and his impact in the region. Nevertheless, his political face is what most affects his reputation and the one the most reflects his successes and failures. And it is only the only face that his detractor aimed to destroy. The Secretary General lacks of leadership, leadership is so evident that he doesn't even have a good press secretary, just to give you an example, to handle relations with the media. This person, when he appointed, is from Chile and speaks no English. There is no cordial relations with the OAS between Insulza and the OAS Assistant Secretary General. Everybody performs according to his or her degrees or competence. While he was reduced, his personal appointee from 12 to 4 percent, many of those remaining are in their position due to their friendship with Insulza and not because of their professional record. The lack of funds are forcing many officials to leave the office, the OS, the OAS, Nobody feels secure at the OAS will result in confusion and lack of interest by employed within the organization, even those loyal to Insulza who every day are in the minority. Before we lose, the Organization of American State have to offer to the United States, to the hemisphere, we must realize that if commitment to democracy should crumble, everything else will slide down that same path. Even though it's a little late, we can still, still avoid the process of the complete hijacking of the organization, such an important of the Organization of American States. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Ambassador, for those remarks. Our next speaker is Mr. William M. Berenson. He is currently an attorney in private practice in Arlington, Virginia. He's also an agent professor at American University's Washington College of Law, where he has taught since 1984. Mr. Berenson retired from the OAS on December 31st, 2012, just barely over a month ago, after having served in various legal positions over a span of almost 30 years. 
They included General Counsel, Acting Secretary, uh, Assistant Secretary for Legal Affairs, Director for the Department of Legal Services, Chief of Lit Litigation, and Principal Attorney. Mr. Berenson has worked extensively in Latin America, and he's also a veteran of many of the OAS electoral observation missions. He received his JD from Boston University, where he was note and case editor for the Boston University Law Review. He received both an MA and a PhD degrees in political science from Vanderbilt University and an AB from Dartmouth College. He's admitted to practice law in the District of Columbia, Virginia, and Massachusetts. Please help me welcome Mr. William Berenson. Thank you very much, Juan Carlos, and muy buenas tardes todos. Uh, I want to uh, say there's nothing symbolic about my sitting over this side and my good friend, Ambassador Cochise, and Juan Carlos sitting on that. I'm not here to refute anything that's been said by Ambassador Cochise, and I, I admire Ambassador Cochise. He's uh, been a staunch defender of human rights, democracy, uh, freedom of expression, uh, and, and uh, uh, he's a hero to many uh, people who uh, admire him at the Organization of American States. Uh, what I'm here to do this afternoon is essentially try to put another perspective on what's happening at the OAS from more through the, the mind, perhaps, of an attorney than a lawyer rather than an advocate of uh, the political uh, causes that have been discussed so far. Uh, and so I'm going to try to discuss five different areas which uh, I think are relevant for our discussion today. And then I suppose we'll throw it over to discussion, uh, to questions afterwards. The first point I'm going to try to make, and I'll develop these points later, but I'll try to summarize my points first, is that uh, I don't look at the OAS as having been captured by the ALBA countries. I think there is a realignment, there's a realignment within the organization, which is due to a number of political and economic factors which uh, merit some discussion, and we'll get to that in a minute. Then uh, I want to make a point about the Secretary General. I think sometimes our expectations of what the Secretary General can do legally are, are uh, unrealistic. Uh, as I will point out later, the Charter really limits the authority of the Secretary General. Uh, the position is essentially that of an administrator. He was given some political functions under the Protocol of Cartagena in 1985, but very limited indeed, and I'll describe where that is and, and why that is so. Uh, the other point I want to make is if you look at uh, Ambassador or Minister in Solsa's, uh tenure at the OAS, uh, as in any, the tenure of any political official, there are high points and there are low points. And there are incidences which we can point to where we can see that he has been a defender of democracy. And certainly in his role as Secretary General, as Administrator and a budget uh, proposer, he has been always taking into account the primary role that democracy and human rights has within the organization and has advocated increased financing and support for those areas of the, of the Secretariat. The fourth point I want to make is uh, 
There is an institutional schizophrenia within the organization. On one hand, we have what I think would adequately be described as a very disappointing uh, performance of the permanent council in coming to the defense of uh, what we commonly accept as uh, democratic governance and democratic conduct in the hemisphere is set out in the Democratic Charter, uh, which is, uh, uh, but, but I think really to condemn or criticize the whole organization on the basis of one organ is somewhat unjust. And I think even, I think Ambassador Cochez has pointed out to the fine work that the Human Rights Commission continues to do under very difficult circumstances. The Rapporteur for Expression, uh, for Freedom of Expression, has done outstanding work in recent years. And you have to look at all the operating wings of the organization to come to an assessment. Yes, the commission's under attack. Yes, the court is under attack. Yes, the freedom of expression uh, rapporteur is under attack. But they're still there. They're still doing their job. Their reports are on the, on the web. You can read the reports. They're, they're very good reports and highly documented. And they, and they do have an impact. Such an impact that the Alba countries have devoted a lot of effort in trying to undermine them. Uh, and so forth, fortunately, unsuccessfully. Uh, and you have to realize that the organization lists enlist in a, uh, exist under a charter, an inter-American treaty, which uh, has established an ongoing tension within the organization for years. And that's this tension between this commitment on one hand to representative democracy and on the other hand, a commitment to non-interventionism. And how you, how you balance those two becomes, becomes problematic as we've seen in, in the, through the exposition of Ambassador Cochise today. Uh, when you criticize a country for not having uh, appropriate democratic mechanisms in force, the, the immediate defense is you can't intervene. You can't intervene. Uh, yes, the Charter says representative democracy, uh, provided there's no intervention from uh, extraneous sources. So you have this underlying concern that's established in the Charter, this underlying tension, excuse me, that's in the Charter, which uh, we always have to take into account within the organization. The fifth area I'm going to talk about is the Democratic Charter itself and the need for certain uh, tweaking of the Charter to take into account situations which uh, really uh, the legalist will argue cannot be addressed. Very important situations, one for instance, is when you have, an uncons you have a constitutional measure which is inconsistent with democracy. If you read the Charter, you'll see the Charter talks about unconstitutional alterations of the democratic order, unconstitutional uh, interruptions of the democratic order. But there's nothing said about constitutional interruptions of the democratic order. And I think that has, to, that has to be addressed. And I'm also going to say some words uh, echoing somewhat of what Ambassador Coche says about the effectiveness of sanctions and whether they're really uh, appropriate in an institution, uh, the sanction of uh, suspension, excuse me, whether the uh, sanction of suspension is really appropriate in an institution 
like the Organization of American States, which strives to be inclusive and strives to promote dialogue. Okay, going back to my first point about the realignment within the organization, the changing landscape, I think it's apparent to all of us that the OAS is not the same institution that it was in the 60s and the 80s, when the U.S. could call most of the shots. I remember quite clearly in 1993 when uh, Foreign Minister Niehaus from Costa Rica was supposedly the anointed candidate who was going to be elected Secretary General of the OAS. Uh, most of the countries came, had made their commitments to elect him. The U.S. Was not, uh, did not view that candidacy with, with uh, much favor, particularly because of some of the statements Mr. Niehaus had made about Cuba. Uh, so they invited a number of countries over to the foggy bottom uh, arms were twisted, ambassadors came out, and foreign ministers came out with casts on their arms, and the vote went to uh, Secretary General Gaviria, which personally I th think was a very good thing because I think Secretary General Gaviria was an outstanding Secretary General. But uh, that was the way things were in the OAS. Uh, the U.S. could call the shots, and when it wanted to muscle the power to direct things the way it, it wanted, it could get things aligned in its direction. But then we had, of course, happening at the same time here, we had the uh, strengthening of the economies of many of the countries in South America beginning to take shape. They were emerging from a decade or two of repressive dictatorship. They were uh, strengthened civically by the support of the sovereign wills of their people. And uh, they were stronger. They felt their independence. They felt the support of their civilian populations. And, uh, and they began to exercise their will more independently within the organization. At the same time, we began to have the formation of sub-regional groups, which really came, uh, developed great, greater strength uh, in the late uh, 1990s and the first five years of uh, the new millennium. Uh, the SECLA, the community of states of Latin America and Caribbean, UNICER, uh, and they looked at first, uh, some of these organizations grew out of, uh, particularly UNICER, which grew out of Mercosur, uh, had a, uh, an agenda Originally, of promoting trade, but as often happens, trade unions and trade interests develop into common political interests. We see that, uh, you know, how the European Union developed out of the European coal and trade community and steel community developed into a more uh, effective and, and binding political union. And, and uh, we see that happening in the Americas as well. So we have the growth of these sub-regional groups, blocks, which... Uh, which vote accordingly within, within the OAS as well. Uh, we had at the same time a growing, after 9-11 uh, in particular, a growing perception of weakness in the United States. Um, wow, I'm limited on my time here, I see. A growing limitation in the, uh, in the uh, uh, a growing perception of weakness in the United States after 9-11. Uh, uh, it was uh, 
basically because uh, the negotiations, uh, FTAA collapsed, uh, there was uh, uh, resources were, were redirected towards uh, other parts of the world. And uh, because of that preoccupation with other parts of the world, there was a failure of the U.S. to provide a sustained leadership and support to the OAS. And uh, other countries began to fill the void. The Alba countries saw this, and they began to fill the void. They had their agenda, and uh, they've pushed their agenda. Um, and it was quite evident in, in 2005 with the election of uh, Secretary General Insulza. He was not the candidate of the United States. He was openly recognized not to be the candidate of the United States. Uh, and he won election uh, basically by appealing to a coalition of, of other countries. As you may recall, the vote was tied for five uh, rounds. And finally, uh, uh, there was a month delay, a cooling off period. And he came back and was elected, elected uh, with two, uh, I believe, with staining votes of Peru and Bolivia. Um, so we have basically the emergence of stronger regionalism within Latin America, and of course we have uh, countries like Venezuela stepping into the void created by less uh, foreign assistance in Latin America, by uh, uh, and less attention being paid to Latin America, I believe, by our uh, government. Now, as far as the Secretarial, Secretary General's authorities are concerned, let me just say uh, uh, the authority, political attribute he was given in, in uh, 1985 is, is simply the capacity to bring to the attention of the Permanent Council issues in the Americas which, in his opinion, threaten the peace security, and develop of the Americas. And going back, this is before the Democratic Charter, that would include issues which involve democracy. Because if you look at the preamble of the charter that was amended in 1985, it says representative democracy is essential to the stability, peace, and development of the hemisphere. So if you have a problem with representative democracy, you certainly can take that to the Permanent Council. Um, he has in some times, he hasn't in others. It's left to his judgment. Um, we can speculate as to why some and why not others. Uh, but it's, it's a discretionary capacity that he has. It's not a, a mandatory capacity. And his functions, if you look at the Charter, the Articles 112, 113, they're largely that of uh, of directing and serving as a legal representative of the Secretariat, which performs a number of uh, ministerial functions for the organization. The political role is essentially in the Permanent Council, the General Assembly. It's the member states who take responsibility for directing the organization. It's not the Secretary General. Now, the current Secretary General, in all fairness, as I said earlier, supported increases in the budget for democracy. That's increased over 64% while he's been Secretary General. The budget for, uh, and he's proposed for greater increases. Similarly, for uh, human rights, it's increased 84%. It 
Unfortunately, the member states have not increased the total amount of the budget significantly, really at all, in real terms, so that the amounts devoted overall for those activities are certainly less desirable than they should be. But the OAS, of course, has many, many mandates, and democracy, although it's a pillar of the organization, is one of several human rights as well. Uh, in fairness to the Secretary General, in 2007, he did speak out very strongly against uh, Mr. Chavez's uh, uh, decision not to renew the license of Global Vision. He condemned it as a, uh, a violation of freedom of expression, uh, having a very chilling effect on democracy within that country. And Mr. Chavez's response was to call him the A-word. And I would submit that when you, you're called the A-word by Mr. Chavez, you're, you're doing your job at least at that point and at that time. Similarly, in 2010, the Secretary General did speak out against uh, the so-called Enabling Act, which was a law which shut down the, uh, the, general, uh, the, the legislature, essentially, of, of, of Venezuela, took a lot of its authority away, did away with the immunities of the delegates, and basically uh, uh, transferred to the uh, President, Mr. Chavez, the power to make executive decrees um, in many areas of the law. Mr. Mr. Uh, Insulsa did highly criticize that, but unfortunately, there was not an echo of support from his member states, and nothing really evolved from that. Um, so as you can see, the Secretary General's interventions have been selective. Uh, he has not taken a strong stand on some instances. He's picked his, his fight, so to speak, picked his issues, but he has not all been altogether silent uh, in his treatment of his responsibilities in that regard. Uh, the institutional schizophrenia, just let me, uh, I know I have very little time, they tell me a minute. Uh, let me just say, go to the webpage of the commission, read its reports. Uh, there are no punches pulled on Venezuela, no punches pulled on Honduras, no punches pulled on Cuba. They're there, and hopefully they'll be continued there. I don't share the pessimism uh, uh, that has been expressed by Ambassador Cochez on the, on the future of the commission. I think it will withstand, be able to withstand the, the attacks that uh, are currently undertaken by a number of countries. I also, uh, I also think it was very encouraging that when it came to Paraguay uh, last summer, that uh, the recipe for Honduras was not followed, that there was no suspension. Um, and that uh, although there's continuing monitoring of the situation, the OAS was not used for uh, administering sanctions against Paraguay. And really, if you look at the two cases of Paraguay and Honduras, um, the difference is the military ushering a secretary general out of the country. Both are sort of legislative uh, assumptions of power in the countries uh, for uh, what I would say legitimate reasons, uh, and we can get into Honduras later. I think you have some questions about that. But I think at least the organization showed some resistance, showed some maturity now, but was not successful. They pushed very hard for a similar solution in Paraguay. 
Finally, as to the Democratic Charter, I want, I, I think we should look at several things there. One, uh, I have several points, but I'll just, I'll just talk about two. One is the efficacy of suspension as a sanction. I, I don't think that um, suspension works. Uh, it hasn't worked with Cuba. It, uh, it really was of no consequence in Honduras, except that it harmed the Hondurans. Uh, it had negative effects. Honduras was committed, the interim government was committed to holding new elections in very short order in, in responding to the need for uh, trying to uh, correspond with the principles of basic democracy. They were responsive. Um, and I don't think suspension was, was necessary. It just caused more harm than good. Uh, I think the organization is an organization for inclusiveness and dialogue. You don't have a dialogue when somebody is excluded from the organization. I can only recall back in 2003 when the U.S. and Canada asked for a discussion and a declaration of uh, sanctions against Cuba for the imprisonment uh, of and the condemnation of 15 or so journalists that... Uh, the argument given for not doing it in the OAS by the Caribbean was there was no due process. Cuba was not there to defend itself. The argument sounds a little bit specious, but it was there, and it's a legal argument. And I think you have to avoid that. You can sanction a country in other ways. You could uh, amend the OAS charter to take the voting rights away if there's an interruption in constitutional uh, regime. Uh, uh, an unconstitutional interruption in the constitutional regime. And you can, and you can uh, take away certain other privileges, the privilege to have an office, projects, financing, so forth, uh, as well. So there are other ways to skin the cat as far as sanctions are concerned. I don't think suspension is the best one. And finally, I think there's a, there's a, there's a need to discuss what happens, and we've seen this in some countries, when a constitution amends it, when a country amends its constitution, through the provisions provided in the Constitution to provide for certain kinds of structural changes which threaten the separation of powers, which enables a president to, uh, to uh, determine who the judges are going to be, how their uh, careers are going to advance, and, and uh, uh, whether they should be hired, fired or advanced. Those kinds of movements in countries, the developments in countries, which are constitutional but undemocratic, are not addressed in the democratic charter as issues that can be brought to the attention of the permanent council and for which certain remedies can be suggested. And I think that's a major hole in the, in the democratic charter. There are others as well. That's discussion for another time, and I will cede uh, the floor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Berenson. We're going to go for questions. Uh, those of you who want to ask a question, first wait for the mic, identify yourself, and please be concise in your question and not make a comment. Uh, anyone? Here we have a first question. Hello, I'm Jim Morrell from the Haiti Democracy Project here in Washington. Uh, you've spoken of Hugo Chavez a fair amount. Um, and I want to recount to you an incident in Haiti and get 
your commentary on how you would um, put this in the larger context that you've been describing. Uh, the OAS had an electoral mission in Haiti in 2010. Can you speak closer to the mic? Um, Chavez was funding one candidate for president in that election. Um, <clears throat> the, the president of the country arranged to have votes taken out of quarantine to favor this particular candidate's election. The OAS said publicly it was in the tabulation center monitoring everything that happened there. It said nothing. Uh, the United States had to send a verification mission to correct this. The OAS attempted to suppress the findings of that mission. So my question is, how do you put this in the larger context that you've been describing? That's not new that uh, Venezuela supports parties in... in yeah. That's not... Uh, it's not as strange that Venezuela supports uh, candidates in other countries. That's real an intervention. Uh, when this, the present government of Panama discovered that the, the officers of the, of the Venezuelan officers, uh, embassy in Panama were... Uh, visiting the interior of Panama, uh, giving speeches about the the Bolivarian government, the government protest to the embassy. They do that in every country. Uh, look what is happening in El Salvador. They have uh, businesses there, Alba Pharmaceutical, Alba uh, Grocery, etc. Uh, but that's not intervention. That's a uh, they 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 intervene in all the countries who have been intervening in Venezuela more than Cuba. But when you say something, you are the one intervening. And the OAS doesn't have any resort to avoid uh, or to change that, that, that trend. Gustavo. Uh, Gustavo Coronel, I am a Venezuelan uh, geologist. Um, I have listened to, to the two presentations, and it seems to me that it, they sounded like if we are in a trial here with Ambassador Coches being the uh, accuser and um, uh, Mr. Berenson being a very passionate defender of uh, Secretary General Insulza. I just wanted to say that as a member of the jury, I have no doubt that the man is guilty. I mean, clearly guilty, because it's not a matter of legal authority being curtailed. It's not a matter of being short of money. It's just a matter of attitude. Attitude doesn't have to involve large investments. Uh, if the man wanted to make a gesture towards democracy in Latin America, he would have had ample opportunity to do so, and he didn't. But my question is, in light of what is going on today in Venezuela, where the political situation challenges all imagination, is, is it possible that the OAS now takes some action regarding Venezuela? Let me have uh, Mr. Bernson reply first, and then we can have Mr. Coches. 
Thank you. I, I certainly didn't come here as, uh, as uh, the defender of the Secretary General. I just wanted to put some balance into it to try to show that Secretary General at times has uh, acted uh, in, to defend democracy and freedom of the press and has, uh, it's part again of the schizophrenia of the organization. I, I think there are institutions and times where the organization comes out strong and other times when it disappoints, uh, disappoints us. It's due to political alignments within the organization. Uh, it's due to a concern uh, to keep the organization from spinning apart through the centrifugal forces within it politically. I think the Secretary General has always been conscious of that. In other countries, like the United States and Canada, are always conscious too, which uh, are conscious of that, which which somewhat explains, in my mind, my way of thinking, their, their timidity, their their reticence sometimes to act when they should act. Uh, and and uh, I certainly uh, share the disappointment of many with what the areas of the organization where it, it, it should intervene, uh, uh, should take a, a stronger role, but but I understand where it's coming from. I understand where it's coming from. You don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still a lot of good things that the organization can do, and the organization would be a less effective organization if uh, Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, uh, Argentina, uh, Brazil were not uh, actively involved in the organization in one way or another. So I... I, I I understand the difficult decisions have to be made. Um, could the organization take a more active role in, in, in Venezuela? Well, I suppose it's, it's what kind of a, uh, a, a role you're talking about. Certainly, if you read uh, the reports of the, the, the commission, the commission are quite damning of what, uh, uh, what's going on in Venezuela. They point out with quite suppression or a tremendous amount of uh, precision, uh, suppression of the press, harassment of defenders of uh, civil liberties, uh, the uh, absolute uh, uh, sequestration or capture of the judiciary and the whole prosecutorial system by the, by the executive branch. Um, it's, uh, it's in one, it begins with the 2009 report, is some of it in the 2002 and 2003 reports, in the annual reports of 2010-2011. Now, those reports, in my estimation, should be the subject of discussion in the Permanent Council, and then the question is, is what to do about it? Now, uh, the Charter, uh, by itself, really doesn't provide uh, too much of a remedy because you don't have what the Charter says in Article 9, you can suspend a country for, if there's a golpe, if there's a, uh, a coup by, by force. A coup by force. Um, uh, and uh, uh, that's not what we have in, in Venezuela. We have uh, elections. We have uh, a, a regime that's elected by 60% uh, or more of the, of, of the vote with, in, in elections which... Uh, at least uh, in the early years were uh, unchallenged and considered to be free. Uh, uh, and uh, it's, uh, so remedies of suspension, I'd say, are very unlikely. You don't have an unconstitutional interruption. You may have something that's called an alteration under the, the, uh, the Democratic Charter, an alteration of the constitutional order, but, you know, there would be debate over the seriousness. If you go to the, the, the case of um, 
that was mentioned by Ambassador Cochise in, in January, yes, uh, the Constitution provided a route for uh, a, a recipe of what to do when a president, uh, elected president, cannot take the oath of office. And that was not followed. What happened was there was a, a jury rig situation approved by a, a Supreme Court, uh, uh, obviously packed by uh, Chavez in in many years, they expanded the numbers of the members of the court. And, and uh, so there's not, um, there's an alteration. But the, even the Democratic Charter says for, uh, for a, an alteration in the, uh, in the Democratic order, suspension is not a remedy. That's... So, uh, you know, the questions, I think there has to be discussion, there has to be declarations, there has to be some kind of trying to develop some uh, a greater civic conscience or maybe of shame of that government to take some measures that conform with a greater degree with all the principles in the democratic charter. That's what the organization can do. Uh, Ambassador. Thank you. Uh, I agree with Gustavo. Uh, and one of his, the arguments I would use is that what uh, William said, uh, Insulza has been very selective in his declarations. When he doesn't want problems, he doesn't go into the problem. And that has been his policy. He, he disappeared when, in this case. And to the second question you have, Gustavo, the only country who will do something in the, within the U.S. is Canada. And I applaud the decision of the Foreign Minister of Canada to visit Caracas the next days. And he, he, the minister announces that they, he will meet with the people of the government and with the people of the opposition. And that will send a message of respect of the human rights. Nobody has done that in any of our countries, no one. And I, I hope that other countries will support the Canadian effort to doing something within the OAS. That's, that's good from the freest country in North America, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about being selective uh, for the Secretary General, uh, I cannot forget what happened in Honduras. It wasn't only that what happened after Celaya's removal uh, from power, but what happened before. Where, where Insulza was actively supporting Celaya's effort to conduct a referendum that had been declared illegal That's right. by the Constitutional Court, by the Supreme, uh, the, by, by the Electoral College, uh, Body, and even sending monitors to watch this referendum that was going to be illegal, trying to give him some sort of legitimacy. That's so right. that's where, where you see that Celaya has not been only uh, just an administrator that sometimes picks a fight. No, he actually engaged in that fight, supporting a guy who wanted to change the constitution in order to stay in power. So I think that that uh, we, we cannot be at, as generous with 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 Insulza. Uh, here we have one question. We we're running out of time, so I appreciate if you can uh, keep the questions uh, extremely short and also the answers very short. <laughs> Uh, my name is Alex Sanchez. I work for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. I'm just wondering if you can put Insulza in a historical context of past Secretary Generals, where you know, 
how, how would you rate his administration? For example, I remember Cesar Gaviria, when he was in power, um, he was fairly quiet when he came to the Alberto Fujimori dictatorship in Peru. So, no, Insulza has been quiet, as you say, in, in, in the crisis in Venezuela, in, in Honduras, but so were some of his predecessors, like, like I said, Gaviria in Peru. Thank you. I think uh, in, in rating, rating secretary generals is a, is a very dangerous process uh, because they all lived in different times. They live in different times. I think uh, Mr. Insulsa has had the most difficult of the times, quite frankly, with the, uh, with the change in the political alignment that I described earlier in my remarks. I think uh, Gaviria had, in the end of his administration, had a bit of that. And Baina Suarez was secretary general during the, the Fuji Morasso and 1992, as I, I recall, and that was, you know, that was a workout, that was an arrangement, a political arrangement. Um, you look at, uh, you know, one, one thing, if you look at the administration uh, of, of Gaviria, he was uh, good for the staff, he upheld, uh, he gave them a sense of dignity, their equality uh, in, in compensation and rights uh, with their UN colleagues. Um, uh, Insulsa has tried his best, given the, the financial difficulties, to keep the, the spirit of parity alive. Uh, Baina Suarez was instrumental in ushering the organization into a, an administrative uh, restructuring and, and uh, a resurgence in renovation of the staff and uh, the political order of the staff. I think, you know, when history writes it all in the end, they'll find pros and cons in the administration of all. It is a very difficult job. Uh, I wasn't around, although because of my gray hair, some I think I was, but I was not around when, when Mora was Secretary General back in the uh, 1960s. He was a Uruguay, former Uruguayan uh, minister, I believe. But uh, Mora apparently got so fed up with the Permanent Council, he spent the last two years of his administration huddled up in the residence and didn't appear. It is a very difficult job to do. Yeah. Um, Gallo Plaza only spent one term at it, and uh, Alejandro Orfila resigned prior to the end of his second term. All right, so uh, we have uh, two last questions. Please keep it extremely brief. Uh, Javier won, and over there, the last one, sorry that uh, you cannot uh, run it up, but let's keep it like 30 okay. seconds. Thank you, Juan Carlos. Uh, I'm Javier Elaje from the Human Rights Foundation. We've written about the democracy clause before. I wanted to uh, first point out that um, the uh, going back to the Fujimori uh, issue, in response precisely to the Fujimori erosion of democracy through the 90s is that the government of Peru proposed the, the, the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Thus, the charter interprets through the preamble articles 18, 19, 20, and 21, interpret that now not only the forcible overthrow of a government that is a coup should trigger the, the application, potentially the suspension of a country, but the erosion of democracy, most importantly. That's the main reason why the Inter-American Democratic Charter was passed. Now, even without the charter, only with Resolution 1080 from 1991, the OAS managed to put together two high-level diplomatic missions and, that were sent for the Fujimorazo in 1992 and in, in, in 2000 to Peru to observe. Don't you think that there is extensive, uh, exceeding legal authority for, at least in the case of Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, Nicaragua, to have sent this sort of diplomatic mission and not only send 
send them, as you say, uh, through the leadership of, 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 as Juan Carlos has pointed out, through the leadership of, bad leadership of Insulsa, to support actually one of these presidents that is actively trying to erode the democratic institutions in the country. 30 seconds, Mr. Bernstein. Number, number one, uh, you can't get a diplomatic mission into a country unless they accept it. So you can't intervene in that country contrary to its will. And, and the, the charter provides a, a mechanism for you know, asking for the diplomatic mission to, to take place. But um, as far as suspension is concerned for alterations, uh, the Democratic Charter uh, is, is ambiguous, but if you want to read it very legalistically, the suspension mechanism only triggers into effect if there's an, an interruption, uh, unconstitutional interruption in the Democratic order, not the alteration. And the, those paragraphs, I, if I had time, I would have gone, they need some clarification. Uh, at any rate, I think it's clearly established in the Charter as I pointed out earlier, the Secretary General does have to have the authority to bring those uh, issues to the fore, put them on the table before the Permanent Council, and ask them to take some action. He does have that authority. Without a Democratic Charter, with a Democratic Charter, with Resolution 1080, without Resolution 1080. But it's up to the countries to take the action that's, that's required. One last question, 30 Hello. seconds, please. Because I want to mention that uh, I'm a journalist uh, from Argentina. Your name is? Andy Jude. Uh, in the last debate where Mr. Coches was present, he received an insult from the ambassador from Venezuela directly in his speech. And I was uh, questioning and talking with some ambassadors and also uh, some other authorities of the OES, and I think it's one of the first time that an ambassador insults personally another ambassador and the debate should be, by, the, by the, uh, the, the regulation of the OAS, suspended. In that moment, the, the uh, president of the, of the council was from Nicaragua, and also I don't, re, I don't re, re, recall if uh, Insulza was present, but I want to know your opinion if the debate should be immediately suspended when there is an insult from one country to another one in that moment. Mr. Coches, and want some final words? Uh, I have, that's, that's the opinion of, of other ambassadors and people who were attending the, the meeting, but what you can expect from the Nicaraguan uh, ambassador that at the beginning of his tenure as president of the Permanent Council uh, give a speech against the United States and nobody say a word, only me. Uh, the United States state, it keeps silence. But we have to remember that Mr. Chatterton have to speak to the people in Venezuela. He was not speaking to us. That's the reason because I don't give any importance of what he say. Well, that's, uh, that's it for today. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, we have a light lunch upstairs, so please uh, go up the, the stairs and, and join us for a lunch. And <laughs> let me have an applause for the speakers.